brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Again, my friend John Burns did an amazing intro for this show, which I don't mention often enough. Oh, I didn't uh, know that he did that for us. Yeah, that's, that's my friend, like, custom theme song. And I, I remember I mentioned in an email um, that people said it sounded similar to the Top Gun theme, and it does because I said, like, think Top Gun theme, because <laughs> our audience likes that. So, yeah, check him out. It's John Burns, but it's uh, John J-O-H-N-B-Y-R-N-E-S. Uh, just because he, he really hooked it up, did a great job. So cool. I don't I don't mention it every episode, but uh, yeah. And I also want to mention, uh, correct myself, last episode while I was editing it, editing, editing the show, I noticed that I mentioned that uh, soldier um, who uh, molested those underage girls. I, I said Thomas Mrozik. I don't know why. His name was William Mrozik. But I noticed that when I listened back. So he, was, it might have been his middle name, but regardless, yeah. Yeah, I was like the issue a correction if I screw up. So William Rosick. Uh, getting into everything, I saw via social media that you got to meet favorite of the show, which I believe was the most listened to episode we've ever done. The first episode with him, Mike Vining in person for yeah. the first time. Yeah. Um, you know, Mike and I had corresponded for years and. Um, he had mentioned that he was coming through the city. Uh, so we got together and, um, you know, met up and had a coffee on Sunday morning before uh, I had to head off to a Yankee game. And, uh, yeah, it was great seeing him in person. He's a super interesting guy. He's got, like, way more stories than even people realize. So why was he in New York? Um, just, I mean, he's, he's you know, enjoying his retirement. Um, I guess coming to New York City um, was on his wife's bucket list, something she wanted to do. So they were going off to a play. Um, so, yeah, like I said, he's enjoying life. I just wish we would have got him in studio. We have to at it some w- point. It would have been cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, and he, he was telling me a lot of stories about uh, rock climbing and mountaineering. And um, he has a whole background. That's his hobbies. And so he has a whole background there. and just Skiing, I think, too, right? Skiing, yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff that he's done. Um, he was even telling me about how, well, he took a Delta team uh, to climb Denali. Uh, and he and also Rainier, I believe. And he was telling me this story about how when China opened up on um, the Chinese side of Mount Everest, he was supposed to go with some SAS guys and climb Mount Everest. Wow. Well, he's like, I don't know if I would have been on the summit team or not, but I would have gone up there to the base camp at least. Um, and he said that the SAS guys, his, so he was still in Delta at the time. His commander uh, denied him TDY, said he couldn't go. So the SAS guys went. What's to, TDY? Uh, temporary duty. Oh, gotcha. 
Um, so they wouldn't release him because he was an important person in the unit. Like if something happened, like you kind of want like, you know, your senior EOD guy there. Um, so that he was telling me, you know, he, he stayed home and the SAS guys went and they got hit by an avalanche Mm. and one guy got killed. Another dude broke his back. They lost like all their equipment. How many times has this man escaped death? Like between that, (laughs) it's true. I don't know. Bob Dole rally. Uh, Grenada just getting raked by machine gun fire. I mean, like I said, he's an interesting guy and a totally humble, down to earth, quiet guy. You know, did, did he uh, say anything about the response to the episode? I'm sure he's heard some people. Uh, not really. No, he's kind of off the internet though, right? So, yeah, I mean, he. I mean, he stays in touch with his friends and teammates and stuff. But I mean, I don't. I don't think. I don't know. It's crazy because, like, I do think that episode got a bigger response than any other episode we've ever done more lessons than any episode we've ever done yeah, so rightly so yeah he's it's you know he's probably unaware of the memes that go around of him <laughs> and all this other stuff yeah I, I mean that's why when i posted that picture up people were like did he ask you if you operate yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but no i'm glad that that podcast got so many listens because you know mike vining was one of the originals and he served this country for a long long time um so i'm glad people are getting to hear his story does he still talk to jerry boykin i don't know yeah, I just wonder, because Jerry Boykin is a guy who's very out there in the media and in the forefront, you know, regularly on like Fox News, regularly on radio, and Mike Vining keeps you know to himself for the most part. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Boykin is kind of in a different uh, different ball game, I guess. I mean, he's but also, they came up together, so. Oh yeah, no, they were in the unit at the same time. But a Boykin is uh, he's a preacher, yeah, you know, so he's out there. Delivering the word of God, I guess. Well, yeah, he's well. He's also very big on that. I, you know, I, we tried to get him on once. The American Family Council, Family Research Council, Family Research Council. And yeah. I, I think that they like turned us down. I tried to get him on before, though. And you know, I do know about the American Family Research Council, and they're like a group that's very vehemently like anti-gay marriage. Yeah, very conservative. Yeah, and, and like very. Yeah, social conservative values type of group, it, and which is interesting because that stuff, wh- whatever your opinion on it may be, has nothing to do with the military, which is his expertise. You remember when uh, we interviewed Oliver North, and I asked him about that operation in Sudan, and that was Jerry Boykin, yeah, who was there for that, and uh, and Oliver North had to get out of jail free. He said it was actually a letter signed by Ronald Reagan, basically a get out of jail free card, saying these guys can do what they want. We got to get him back on somehow. Ollie? Yeah. I would love to. I'd love to get him in the studio. He's got some stories. For sure, man. <laughs> he really does. Um, all right. So before we get to Jim Morris, who, by the way, former Green Beret, uh, served in Vietnam, I was looking at our emails, and I think because we've been paying attention to the emails. If you bring getting... up the Big Bang in Pyongyang, I no. swear to God. Hey, you brought it up. <laughs> uh, so we got a ton of emails sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. And I'm going to try to get to all of them because they're all pretty good questions. Uh, this is from Joseph uh, Gents. First off, outstanding job with the site and the podcast specifically. I've been listening to the podcast podcast for quite a long time and noticed that normal content on Softrep is always better reported and oftentimes better written than what is put out on the mainstream media. That being said, I noticed very little has been mentioned about the issues going on in Yemen. 
From the layman's perspective, it almost seems like Yemen is on the brink of collapsing into another serious situation, but conveniently gets overlooked, underreported because of Saudi Arabia's vested interest in the region. Just wondering if any of you guys had more to say about it. Cheers, Joe. And then he says, P.S. Haven't listened to most of the earlier episodes. I just wanted to give a quick kudos to Ian. The overall quality and layout of the show has changed for the better since he was brought on. And I just wanted to say it hasn't gone unnoticed. Great job, dude. So thank you, Joe. It's also funny to say, like, since I've been brought on, because there were only, like, a few early episodes without me, and it's been... 25, maybe? Yeah, so, like and that. it's quite a few years. But thank you, man. I, I really appreciate it. So yeah. anyway, on to Yemen. Yeah, well, totally legitimate point about Yemen. Um, you know, we still are a small news website, and there's only so much ground. We try to cover as much ground as we can. But I think he's totally right about Yemen being underreported and that we haven't done enough on Yemen. Um, I think probably the reason why it's gone largely unreported and quite frank about this is, uh, I think, because Americans aren't there. I think if Uncle Sam rolled into town, suddenly it would become a big story for the American press. But since it's mostly, um, you know, as you mentioned, the Saudis, there's a bunch of other people there. Um, and, uh, you know, there there are Americans there, but in, in and out. Um, but I think we could do more on that. And uh, I'd really have to go and invest myself in that or get one of our writers to focus on it. It'd be great if we could find somebody who really specializes in that area and that subject because it is incredibly complicated. Um, so, yeah, I can. you already got the gears turning in my head because there's a couple stories Yemen-related I'd like to work on. One is about the private military companies in Yemen. Um, there's a lot there, and it's, an, it's a very interesting story, a very interesting country. So hopefully we get that out there at some point. Yeah, cool. we'll, we'll have to talk about that. Um, all right. This is actually, you've been asked this type of question before, but I wanted to get to it because of this guy's background, which I thought was interesting. Uh, hey, guys, just wanted to start off and say I love the show. It keeps me sane at work while swinging a hammer. Awesome to hear the life stories of the guys you've had on. Favorite recently was Pat McNamara. He's one bad dude. Uh, originally, was listening to Brandon Webb's audiobooks and got me tuned into the app and eventually becoming a team room member. My question for Jack. Long story short, I'm a professional MMA competitor from Pennsylvania. And by the way, he is, which is Jay Haas, J-H-A-H-A. AAS. I looked him up, uh, which is pretty cool to see. Although, from what I know with like MMA, unless you're in UFC or Bellator, like there's not a lot of money in being a pro MMA fighter, which he, you know, he's not in the big organization. It's like pro boxing, probably. Yeah, which I would hope we do see him there one day. Uh, turned pro at 19. I'm 27 now. Made a deal with myself to give fighting a go until 26, or I'd enlist with eyes on a shot at Buds. I had a little brother in NSW and a friend in the team, so I was biased there, but ended up in the Army office filling out paperwork with intentions on an 18x contract. My guess, I guess my question is, what would you tell someone who's preparing for selection or going in as an SF baby? Uh, P.S. Ian, I know you're into MMA and do some training. Whereat, if you're ever in PA, look me up. We run a gym down here with a few UFC Bellator vets. Would love to have you in. Thanks in advance. Keep it up. And I did let him know. I, I responded to him. I uh, actually, I go to a UFC gym. I do not train in MMA or any of that. Um, but it's, you know, cool to see. But anyway, I know we've gotten that question before. But yeah, um, well, Jay is in a unique situation. Um, and, you know, good for you, man, going into the military. Um, I think the main question he has to ask himself is, what does he want to do in the military? Um, if he wants to go and be, you know, a maritime commando, then he should definitely go and join the SEALs. 
Um, I think SF would probably be a good fit for him because he's a quote unquote older guy. He's 27. Um, a lot of guys, you know, are 18 when they join the military. Um, it sounds like he work, he has experience as a carpenter, talks about swinging a hammer. He's probably in carpentry. Um, so he has some work experience. He's probably a, a little bit more mature than the average dude who's joining the military. Uh, for him, I would recommend going uh, in as a, uh, yeah, special forces is probably good for him, but a good fit because that's a job that requires a little bit more of a cool head little bit more of a mature personality and he could go in and be an 18 charlie which is a special forces engineer um and his carpentry experience will help bring a lot to the table there um and of course in special forces they also practice army combatives so his uh mixed martial arts background will also be a, a big step up a big leg up for him and he'll be able to bring you know this background he has in mma and carpentry both and bring that into his military career. And we, we talked about that at length, uh, the combative stuff with Matt Larson. When yeah. He was on. He's been on two episodes, actually. You were only on one of them, and then the other was just me, Jim, and Matt. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so if people want to go back in the archives, that was a really cool one. Uh, and thanks for the email. Uh, all right, so this is from Kurt Wissing. Hello, guys. I'm wondering if there are any foreign military units that operate like Green Berets, training conventional forces of uh, partner countries, either overtly or covertly. If so, has the United States military engaged these foreign forces during the GWAT through engagement with their proxy forces? To the interested civilian, it seems like this would be inevitable in modern combat. Thanks for your time. And then another P.S. The George Hand interviews have been awesome. So the answer to the question is, yeah, absolutely. There are other countries that have special forces type, C, type units um, that can engage in either foreign internal defense or unconventional warfare. A lot of times what you see is that with foreign countries is they don't have the um, money and resources to have these highly specialized units like we have. So what you'll find is even like the Canadians and the Australians, that their version of Rangers um, CSOR in uh, Canada and the commandos, uh, Aussie commandos in Australia, will do foreign internal defense missions. So they will be deployed to, uh, like, let's see, um, CSOR um, was quite publicly deployed and sent to Central Africa, part of uh, uh, the Flintlock exercise training um, foreign militaries. The CSOR guys, they'll be deployed, you know, o- over to some areas in their area of responsibility in, uh, in the South China Sea and Southeast Asia. Um, so you see a lot of that. Um, as far as, like, actual, like, like a, the same, like, replicating the same capabilities as U.S. Special Forces, I, the only time I've really seen that sort of thing is where U.S. Special Forces, rightly or wrongly, depending on your point of view, went and deliberately tried to recreate ourselves. We tried to build a mirror image of ourselves. And I saw that in the Philippines. Um, and But see, their special forces, Army special forces, uh, they train um, indige people in the Philippines. They don't go external. They don't conduct external operations. So they're mostly trying to create, you know, a counterinsurgency movement inside their own country. Cool. All right, great answer to that question. 
Uh, and this is from Kyle. Hey, guys, just wanted to say thank you for the podcast. I look for military-related talk often. Typically, it is for the EOD-related material, and it's extremely difficult to find. It seems like the only one you have, but I just listened to the one with Mr. Raritan. We also have, uh, I should say, um, Mike Viney. Yeah. Uh, and enjoyed it during a workout. I'm one of your listeners looking forward to more EOD-related content whenever possible, as it is a desired goal in my naval career. Thanks again, PO3, Snyder, Kyle. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome, man. We, we love doing those. Uh, and as we said, like brings up a topic that you don't hear about often. So if we get in touch with any other EOD guys, we'll... Yeah, do it. or Mike Vining in studio. Yeah, I need point. to. I I know I've said this before, but I need to get a hold of um some guys from psyops and civil affairs, which are kind of like the forgotten branches of special operations. Um, but and people ask us about that too. Like, what do these guys do? I'm interested in joining that. What what's the, what's that job? I know one psyops guy. I'm sure I could get to come on. Um, I'd have to find. I know some civil affairs people. Um, I'll work on it. Yeah, it's not special ops uh, unless there are. I wouldn't know, but I've said that I'd like to get someone who operates like drone strikes. Oh, uh, uh, what do they call them? RPA pilots? That'd be remotely that'd be piloted an aircraft. interesting episode, I think, because it's just a newer warfare. Yeah, and, you know, mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd love to get one of those guys on the show. I'll keep that in mind. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it'd be cool because also you hear about the PTSD these guys go through, and it's different because they're. Basically, they're like operating a video game in a remote right. location, but there's very real consequences. Yeah, you're watching little people walk around on the screen, and then you vaporize them. And not to mention the amount of civilian deaths. Which, you know, as opposed to a sniper, like you are, for the most part, taking out bad guys. And yeah, well, even if you miss, you're going to take out one innocent person. You're not going to blow up like a whole house full of people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just looking at the statistics of, of civilians killed in drone strikes, it's pretty horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like Pakistan. Yeah. Jeez. All right. Uh, here we go. This is from Trey, and uh, it's titled Settle This Argument for Me. Hey, guys. <laughs> Short time fan here, but I love listening to you guys. Uh, please help me settle an argument once and for all. I'm a senior in college that is about to graduate with my bachelor's degree. In Who's crim- tougher, Force Recon or Navy SEALs? <laughs> no, it's not that. Uh, <laughs> with my bachelor's degree in criminal justice with a certification in criminal profiling and security management. That's pretty cool. Uh, I plan on joining the military after I graduate with my degree because my college is already paid in full. I want to sign up for an Option 40 contract, but I've been told by recruiters and people online that if I want to go in as an officer, I will not be able to pick my MOS. This has caused several arguments between my mother and I because she wants me to go in as an officer, but I want to be sure that I'm able to get an Option 40 contract and so that I can go to RASP. I hope you guys can help me out here. Keep up the awesome podcast. Yeah, so the deal is officers don't have an MOS. They have a branch. Um, So when they go through their officer training, whatever route they take, West Point or uh, Green to Gold, and they go to, what is it, OBC and all that kind of stuff, um, they will be assigned a branch. And um, I was never an officer, never wanted to be, don't care about them. But if you (laughs) want to be an officer... Uh, I believe the way it works is they take a certain percentage of each, you know, they look at like where you graduate on, what your scores are, and they'll take a certain percentage of the A students and the B students and try to evenly distribute them into each branch. That's the way I was told it works. So you don't, because otherwise what would happen is all the studs would just go to the infantry. 
and the other branches would get screwed. Um, so I believe that's how it works. Um, I think maybe if you're like the honor grad at West Point, you get to choose your branch, but otherwise it's kind of like needs of the army, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, what he's saying isn't wrong. I mean, you, when you join as an officer, your branch is probably going to be chosen for you. You're probably going to be able to make a suggestion of like, this is what I want to do, but it's going to be more needs of the army. If you go in as enlisted, you're going to be able to choose your MOS. Like you said, you can get that option 40 contract, which is just going to put you right onto the, uh, the pipeline to be a ranger. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Trey. Keep the emails coming. Sofrip.radio at Sofrip.com. We got to a lot of them today. We don't usually do all that, but uh, not so much news going on. You know, of course, the, uh, you know, there's Barbara Bush funeral and stuff like that, but nothing really in our wheelhouse to mention uh, of note. By the way, I noticed it's like quiet in here today. I think yeah. everybody, because the weather is absolutely beautiful so in New York outside. City. I think, you know, like we're in an office, we're moving to a new office, but we're in an office of all these startup companies uh, where I think people, it's almost like us. They get to like pick their schedule a little bit. There's and, those first like couple warm days in New York City, even more so than the summer. It's like those first couple warm spring days, the girls in this town just stop yeah. wearing clothes. Yeah, I love it. Like all together, like barely wearing clothes. Yep. I'm all about it. Absolutely. Can't complain. I wasn't complaining. I was just pointing <laughs> something out. If you're a tourist coming into the city, you know, it might be a good day to come. I would agree. All right. So with that, let's get over to Jim Morris. For the first time on with us is Jim Morris. This guy's got an awesome background, so we're psyched to have him on. It's cool how, Jack, you make contact with a lot of the vets from the Vietnam generation, yeah. and we've been bringing a lot of these guys on, so I'm excited to hear well, your story, Jim. Just just a little background um, from my perspective is, um, you know, Jim is one of those guys who came back from the Vietnam War and articulated his experiences very well. And he wrote one of my favorite books I read while I was in 5th Special Forces Group uh, called War Story, which is about his experiences as a, as a captain in Special Forces in the Vietnam War. And uh, it was just really striking to me how similar our experiences were, even though they were separated by, you know, 40-something years. Wow. And he, his, him in Southeast Asia fighting, you know, communism, <laughs> and me in the Middle East fighting terrorism. But there's so many similarities and uh, that's why I'm, I'm really happy that I've been able to, you know, reach out to Jim and, and, you know, we've been able to correspond over the years. And, and I saw, I should say, that Jim's written quite a few books other than War Story, Above and Beyond, A Battle of Sorcerers, um, and, and, you know, just to let you guys know the background, Jim's a former Green Beret uh, during Vietnam, served in three tours. So it's great to have you on. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for and coming on, Jim. You guys are doing a great thing. Um, Softrep is is um, just a, a major source for me, and and I hope for a lot of my guys my age because some of them know about it and some of them don't. Yeah, we really you know have a lot of pleasure in uh, you know giving you guys a voice, and you know like uh, you know Mike Vining was also a Vietnam veteran, John Stryker Mayer, another Vietnam vet that we have on the show from time to time. Um, so, I mean, it's really important to me that, you know, we, we reflect back on, you know, our past experiences and hopefully learn something from them. Well, you know, there's, there, it's so instructive to look at both the similarities and the differences. I mean, the internal dynamics are pretty much the same, but um, uh, minor changes, you know, you change one factor in a formula, you've got a different formula. And uh, there, there are a few things that have changed that, um, that 
frankly scare me. <laughs> and they're <laughs> supposed to be improvements. Um, like, for instance, when I, when I first uh, joined Special Forces, I was a first lieutenant. And uh, in those days, it took a long time to make captains. So a first lieutenant was a pretty good choice for an exo. Um, now you have to be a captain to join. What I fear, and this is, okay, this is, this is me asking you, not you asking me, uh, about how that's working out, because it seems to me that there's a danger that the, that the newbie on the team is the top guy on the team, and that seems dangerous to me. Yeah, that kind of is an issue, and I think most of the captains, the special forces captains, realize that, and the NCOs kind of regard them. I mean, I remember guys on my team saying, you know, the captain is just a tourist on the team because he's only here for two years, and then he's off to a staff position or something like that. Um, It is an issue. I mean, I don't think that you want to take a a butter bar and, and put them in charge of an SF team, though, Um, but maybe what you could do is take a lieutenant and make them the assistant team leader, which is currently a spot held by warrant officers. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I mean, that's something that you'd have to make a very thorough study of. I'm not sure I'm qualified to start rearranging the entire force structure like that. Um, but it's an interesting question, and maybe it would help alleviate some of the problems that you're, uh, that you're referring to. Well, my, okay, my best friend here in L.A. is uh, Ken Miller, who was a ranger in Vietnam. Oh, yeah, Ken. And is also... A, a super author, and uh, Ken uh, Ken keeps telling me that um, NCOs hate SF being a branch, and uh, that it's a good deal for the officers, and it, and it is because when I when I joined Special Forces, it was career suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, but the what that led to was uh, an an officer's corps that basically didn't give a rat's ass, man. They were there to work, not to uh, not to pad their part or become generals or do any of that thing. They wanted to get down in the weeds and do the work, and we got it done. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you for sure on the team level that uh, that's an issue. I think part of it also, the idea of making special forces a branch was so that we could have special forces colonels and generals who could compete for resources up at the Pentagon. Um, I I think that was also a concern um, because, as you know, from your day, special forces was kind of like the redheaded stepchild of the military. Uh, Yeah, well put. (laughs) Um, Jim, do you want to, um, I don't know where to, I, of course, when I do these interviews with people who have such an extensive biography, I, I don't know where to begin, but I guess maybe could you begin telling us a little bit about, you know, your upbringing and how you found your way into the Vietnam War? Boy, um, well, for one thing, I was the first lieutenant when it started. So um, I, uh, let's see, I was, I was a ROTC kid. I went through ROTC mm-hmm. at the University of Oklahoma. And before that, I was a PFC in a reserve MP unit. Um, and um, then, okay, this was before the days of training group. Well, it wasn't before training group, but it was before selection and all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, had, I, I didn't get to jump school when I first went through infantry officer's basic course. So uh, I went. I had to get back to it. Oh, more than a year after I was on active duty. So we and I was a two-year guy. 
uh, I didn't want to stay in the Army. What I wanted to do was go home and join a Special Forces Reserve Unit, uh, which they had one in Oklahoma City, where I came from. And um, so I, uh, I went back and uh, just... Um, Oh, I'm getting kind of kind of off topic here, um, but in any case, I went to the Pentagon to see about um, getting out. I was afraid I'd catch an overseas tour because I had to extend to go to jump school. And uh, this major down there said, "Have you been talking to anybody down here, Lieutenant?" And I said, "No, sir. Um, uh, I just uh, I, I just need to I need to be getting out and going home." And he said, "Well, I've got a set of orders here." Sending you to Okinawa for three years was the first. <laughs> and he said, now it's not too late. And, you know, I felt like I'd won the lotto. I said, it never even occurred to me that I could even get in special forces with the background that I had. And um, so I said, no, sir, that's, that's okay. You just leave them alone. And I left the Pentagon, and I was laughing so hard that I fell down. <laughs> I mean, I felt, I felt, I mean, I knew that my life had changed completely and forever in that moment. And, um, uh, you know, I can't tell you how much I love, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what life is like in the forces now, but I can tell you what it was like in the first special forces group when I joined it on Okinawa. And it was the happiest place I'd ever been. Everybody there loved what we were doing. They loved the guy we were working for. Um, you know, I was at that point a first lieutenant, and the, the, the team sergeants that they had there, mostly the team sergeants, the senior NCOs, I was in awe of those guys. I was in literal awe all the time. And I studied them, and I learned, and it was, um, God, it was fun. I mean, I, you know, you kind of get the sense, but God, it was fun. What What were the and, salty team sergeants like well, when you got there? I mean, what What was their background? Were they uh, guys oh, who had been think. in White let Star? Me, let me think. Uh, the, there was Tony Duarte, who uh, was Bill Grace's team sergeant. And uh, let's see. He had, as I recall, he had a six-degree karate black belt, and he was also a judo black belt. Uh, he'd been in, I don't know what his combat situation was. I know he'd been in Korea. Uh, but he was, he was, this guy was movie star handsome, and there were two big magazine articles about special forces that came out in that time, one in the Saturday Evening Post and one in Life. And he was on the cover of both of those magazines <laughs> because he totally looked the role. And, uh, and he was the role. I mean, it wasn't that this guy looked the part. He was the part. He was terrific. Um, probably the smartest guy I ever met in the Army was, um, was Bill Edge, who was an SFC when I met him. He retired as, a, I think, a, a command sergeant major, but I'm not sure. Um, and um, uh, I just love it. Okay, Bill Edge, for one thing, you know that saying, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I know I'm the baddest motherfucker there. <laughs> yeah. Edge, Edge said that. He was the guy who said that. Oh, really? And he had, he had another one. Uh, he was, he was a, a uh, it's interesting because when he was dying, his daughter was putting out uh, prayer requests, which I honored. 
but he was a militant atheist when I knew him. And another joke that he, he had that I thought was just great was a biblical quote, which was, and the Lord was making his way to Jerusalem. And while on his way to Jerusalem, he came upon a leper. And the leper looked upon the Lord and spake unto him, Lord, cleanse me, for I am a leper. And the Lord looked upon the leper and said, sick calls at 8 o'clock, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a cynical guy. Yeah. <laughs> really, really smart. And another one, Aries Zaki. I, I can't I can't tell you much about Zaki. I just remember what he looked like, and he looked like a a cross between a tank and a green beret. Um and Willie Card, who uh Willie was I was talking to him one time. A lot of these guys, incidentally, were jumped up to captain from master sergeant during the course of. Oh, the they time. were they were branched, you know, uh, field promotion. Yeah, exactly, because they were they were hurting for hurting for officers, and uh, and here were all these guys who were. Well, look, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm not sure if this if this is still true, but when I, I imagine it is, when I was in SF, the minimum GT or IQ for a special forces soldier was 110, which was the minimum yeah. for uh, OCS. And the only difference between the requirements for OCS and special forces at that time is you couldn't get an OCS without, um, I think, a high school diploma at least. And um, you, uh, no, you couldn't become an officer with a criminal record, and you couldn't get in special forces if you couldn't swim. Those are the differences. And I always say that, you know, if, <clears throat> if a special forces NCO is not an officer, it's because he doesn't want to be or he hasn't got around to it yet. You know, I mean, in, in, the, in the big army, when I was in the big army, the officers had a little bit of a, a little, you know, hey, we're college graduates, we're blah, blah. And uh, they kind of felt, they were better than the NCOs were. The officer in special forces who has that idea is an idiot, you know, <laughs> because the officers aren't better than the NCOs. They just do a different job. I uh, I also wanted to ask you, Jim, because I know you're you're a very like deep thinker, and even in your book, you can see it. You know that you know your thoughts about the war. And I, I as we have this opportunity to talk to you, I wanted to ask you at that time. I, I presume this was like what sixty seven or so. What were your thoughts about Vietnam and the state of the the world and the Cold War and our our um our standoff with the Soviets at the time? How did you perceive the world around you? Okay, your your timeline's a little off. I first went to Vietnam in December of 1963. Oh, geez, so you were really early. Yeah, I, we were the we were the third team. We were going on uh, six month tours. So you came we right watched. after Billy Bowles uh, left. Um, yeah, just well, he was in one. He was in one of those. Um, um, Tony Duarte, whom I mentioned, was his team sergeant. And uh, the article, it was not in the Post, it was in Look. That was, Duarte was on the cover of Look, and there was a, first time I ever even heard of Billy Bolt, um was he was, he was coming out of um, a hooch and saying somebody was bemoaning their fate of being in this horrible place, and he said, it could have been worse, you could have been born here. <laughs> you 
<laughs> and um, uh, and then I I, I kind of got to know him a little bit later. He was a great guy. And uh, the anyway, uh, yeah, I was I was there just a little after Billy Bowles. Um, again, I was the EXO on that team, and um, the. My commander had been the, uh, okay, what, what was now in Special Forces uh, Battalion was in a company and what was, you know, you know how that, that change came into effect. But um, the, uh, my CO had been the company adjutant, and they, they told him to put two teams together, and they gave him the commander for the other one, and he let that guy have who he wanted as much as he could. And with the other team, he built his dream team and then... Uh, went in to get the CO to uh, let him take it. And I still consider the highest compliment I have ever been paid by anybody is that that man chose me to be his EXO. Uh, in any case, uh, in terms of his choices, um, I later I went over to group personnel and, and checked everybody's GT, and the average IQ on that team was about 125. Jeez. Uh, and including Pancho Santiago, who didn't speak English when he took the test. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Pancho, I, I guess he re- later retook the GT because he went to OCS. He um, he had a heart attack and died as a major in 10th group at Devon. So, and he was a junior man on the team. And, of course, the thing I remember most about Pancho is he could fall in love with the guy, with the with a, with any girl he saw at a range of about 150 meters, <laughs> he really had the eyes for that. Um, but all of the all of the junior NCOs on that team uh, retired as officers. Uh, the the let's see, I the junior or second junior man on the team was Bill Foodie, who is our junior medic, and and Foodie had been the honor graduate of his medical course. And then they came to Okinawa, and they made him an armorer because they had too many medics. So he was the honor graduate of that course. And uh, when he retired, he was a full colonel and the Air Force surgeon. And uh, he, he started out in the Army, but um, they needed surgeons so bad that the surgeons could never go to the necessary school, so the pediatricians were being promoted over them. So he just changed to the Air Force where they promptly gave him an eagle. Wow. So, you know, th- these were uh, really extraordinary people, and, and we had a great team, and we had some good breaks. Uh, we'd been, uh, for one thing, we were the third team in, in that area. So, it, you know, the, it was pretty well, we, we had a pretty good intel on it. And then I had the good fortune to hire um, a, a great quote, interpreter, unquote, uh, Philippe Druin, the cowboy, and uh, Dan Ford, who wrote um, the book Incident at Muckwa, from which the movie Go Tell the Spartans was made. Oh, was I haven't a, read that one. Uh, was writing a book about cowboy now. In fact, ah. it'll be out today, uh, because he was just amazing. And I'd spent, oh, maybe four months trying to put together an intelligence net, and then I did, one day I had this epiphany. The light bulb went on over my head, and I, I yelled at Cowboy. I said, hey, Phil, go hire some spies. 
And the next day, I had my intelligence net, <laughs> and immediately became the highest scoring team in two core. Which, okay, this was an interesting thing. Um, we had four core areas in Vietnam, and two core was forty percent of it was the Central Highlands. It was forty percent of the land area of Vietnam, and it had twenty six teams with one B team over them. So nobody told us what to do. You know. So there are twenty six A teams in two cores area of responsibility. That's correct. Wow. With one B team over them at that time. And um, so basically, they gave us what we asked for. Uh, we did what we had to do and told them what they wanted to hear. And you can't do that now because, as I understand it, you've got a B team commander emailing you every 20 minutes trying to tell you what to do. Yes, sir. He's not there. He can't smell it, he doesn't know the players. You know, so he's working off principles that he learned in some other A team in some other area of operation. That and is correct. Yeah, well, it's also bullshit. <laughs> yes, that's also you true. Know, I mean, it's no <laughs> way to run. That's, a, that's, that's no also true. Area. You know, you've got to give, you've got to pick the right people and give them their head. I've, I've heard you kind of make that comment before, too, Jack, where you say, like, the military decisions aren't made from. You know the Starship Enterprise. Yeah, well, I mean, they'd like to think they are, um, but I mean, it's you know, we had that whole conversation. We had Doctor Leonard Wong on to talk about how um, you know, amongst other things, this technology allows you know colonels and generals to reach all the way down through the command structure and tell some you know staff sergeant what to do. Or what about when we had Michael Behenna on? Remember who you know was put in Fort Leavenworth for decision made on the ground and i remember you kind of made that comment to him as well yeah yeah um but that is a big difference and i and i noticed that when i read your book jim because you mentioned at one point about you know your guys on your on your a team would take turns going out taking the indige people that you were training the south vietnamese and going out on um presence patrols out in the jungle around the fob and i was like that's something we could never get away with today really yeah, they'd never let you really? do that. Risk assessments would be maxed out. Yeah, some colonel would lose his mind. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> risk, risk assessment? You know, if it's not worth the risk, why are you having the war? Exactly. If we want to be safe, let's just stay home. Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, well, okay, you guys are giving me chances to bitch about all the stuff I was bitching about 40 <laughs> I love years it. Ago. Uh, well, it's it's because you know, I mean, we're it's a m little mutual exploration here. I'm learning a lot about what's what's happening today. Um, but at the time I was there, I considered my biggest enemy the joint travel regulations <laughs> because it took us. You know, we were there for six months. It took us four months to get grounded, mm -hmm. and um, our most effective time was um, was the last two months. And we, we cleaned house in the last two months. I mean, the first four months we wandered around, um, just, you know, wandered around until somebody shot at us and then we killed them. Um, and the second two months, 
we knew where the roots were, and we kind of knew when they were running on those roots, and we just go sit there and wait for them. You know, before we were running, uh, well, we continued to run uh, five-day patrols, four- and five-day patrols. But but our greatest success in those last two months were, were overnights. We just go out and set up on the right trail and hack whoever came down it, and uh, done, you know. These were like and, VC supply routes and things like that? Well, they were, okay, um, for instance, the best operation I ever ran, um, and, and I really didn't run it, I just told Cowboy what to do, and my contribution to the thing was that we went in to uh, get clearance from the district chief, and he gave me a, a line of rather obvious bullshit about how we couldn't go where we told him we were going because he had patrols in that area. That's nonsense. He never had a night patrol out in his life. And um, so I could tell right then that that the other guys had got to him, and um, he was steering us away from where we might make contact. So we left, and Philippe, cowboy, said to me, he said, uh, uh, we cannot go where he say. Uh, there, you know, there's nobody there. And I said, uh, fuck him, we'll do what we want to, you know. And uh, so we had coordinated, and then uh, he lied to me, and I lied to him, and we went out and ran the <laughs> successful race. And uh, we, uh, what we did was, okay, a 10-man a ten group came by, and they were, the, we later found out that the, the head honcho was, a, was an NVA colonel. Mind you, this was in March of '64, when there, when there was, when it was allegedly all VC. Yeah. And this guy was was coming through to do a survey, um, in advance of their advance party, in advance of their main body, which Holy came shit. in about a year later. And uh, we whacked this dude, and seven of the ten of them were coming down the trail. And they had. Um, it was interesting. They they were they were much better uniformed than what we usually ran into. They were much better equipped than what we usually ran into. Uh, they had uh, check AKs, um, and um, just a lot of Eastern Bloc stuff. So they were they were getting a lot of help from a lot of different places, and uh, so anyway, we whacked those guys and uh, stopped for a beer on the way home, and we're back for lunch, you know? <laughs> and uh, on top of that, just to make it wonderfully perfect, uh, Colonel Leonard, the group commander, came in with Robin Moore, who was researching the Green Berets at that time. And um, so, you know, they happened to just show up uh, the day after my best operation, and uh, and and Robin and I stayed friends until he died. Oh wow! Is Jim? I I have to ask. I'm trying to remember now. Is Cowboy the interpreter? You know who he went and told the American military at one point he was with like the 99th Airborne Mechanized Battalion or something like this. Well, that was okay. That was full rope. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, okay. In in the last. A couple of months of, I can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, the old man, my CO, Cruz McCullough, went on a uh, on a company size operation in the Chudlea area down south of where we were, which was uh, 
um, it was a, a, a VC safe area, and so they got in a uh, in a pretty big battle down there. Foodie got Foodie got shot in the leg. Uh, Ken Miller uh, got shot in the hand that he beat out his own evac message on. Um, and but while they were on that operation, uh, Cowboy told told Cruz that we were that the that the yards were going to revolt. And, uh, and he, he, he gave them everything. He, he gave them their table of organization. He gave them their constitution. He gave them their assault plan. He gave them everything. And um, so Cruz, promptly we called the B-team commander. He came down. He was pretty excited about it. Um, and Cruz went to Saigon and went to J2MACV to explain what was going to happen. And um, he said, so what do you guys think you might want to do about that. And uh, the J2 Mac V officer that he spoke to said, gee, I don't know. I don't know who's in charge of putting down revolts around here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he came back to the camp and about uh, two days later, a quote, cultural anthropologist, unquote, <laughs> who was incidentally not Jerry Hickey, who was a real cultural anthropologist and wrote I think five books about Vietnamese village life in the mountain yards. Great, great man. Um, but um, this guy was, you know, he was, uh, he worked for those guys. And um, he got Cruz aside and he said, We traced every report of this impending revolt back to. Uh, uh, back to your team. And, Captain, what I want to know is, what do you hope to gain by making up this preposterous story? And the old man threw him out of the camp, and he flew away, and uh, then we went home, and in October, here comes the revolt. <clears throat> and the teams that knew it was coming, um, they, they did very well, and the others had some problems. Um, there was, a, there was a great story in the National Geographic, um, a, a guy named Howard Socherek, another, another journalist that I made friends with uh, there. Howard, um, was do, he wanted to do a story for National Geographic about the relationship between SF and the Montagnards, and he happened to show up right in the middle of the revolt. So he did the story about how uh, Vern Gillespie, who had the camp at Boone Brink, uh, handled the revolt. And it, it, it was a beautiful story. Um, and Vern just handled it really well. Um, <clears throat> the B-team commander was actually made the cover of the Geographic. And this was interesting because, okay, you know what I said about the joint travel regulations? Right. Well, after after our team got back, I, I I tried to do two things. I tried to be the CEO of the team that replaced our team, and I tried to be the J two the or the G two of the B team or the the S two of the B team. And um, uh, my interview with that with that B team commander uh, was just. Startling, I must say, because I went in there and I told him, you know, about, the, about my intelligence net and the contacts I had and all that. And he said, I want an officer who speaks Vietnamese. And uh, I said, well, uh, I don't speak, I 
I can kind of get by in Jirai and Rade, but, but I, I, don't, um, I don't really speak Vietnamese, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, uh, he said, well, I want to get in there and, you know, do this before the war is over. And I said, Major, we're going to be in this country for at least 20 years. And he just recoiled in horror. Sure, I hit and he, the ground. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the entire career of Army officer. And I said, this is going to take the entire careers of quite a few Army officers. <laughs> <laughs> and he threw me out of his office as a, you know, an inflammatory dolt. And, um, Boy, this sounds familiar. What, oh, other, yeah. what other country are we probably going to be in for a while? Well, um, hey, I want to ask you guys a question about Afghanistan. All right, I'll try. All right. How can you win a war in a country where the national sport is civil war? <laughs> well, how do you how do you win a war when the, the whole season, but how are you going to win the war? The whole the whole premise is wrong because we're trying to create an Afghan state where there's never been an Afghan state before. Yeah. Well, that's that's another thing that okay, this is something That was that, that was I, true I, of the Central Highlands in Vietnam, wasn't it? Huh? That wasn't that true of the Central Highlands in Vietnam that they never really had a state. They never really wanted one. Oh God, no! They didn't have they didn't have a state when we were there. They had um, basically they had a racket, um, but uh, that probably also sounds familiar. Yeah, a little bit. But yeah, that's true. There's n- there's never been a national state in Afghanistan. It's just kind of a cobbled together thing out of you know, mismatched parts. And um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, that was, well, okay, okay, the point I want to make is that, yeah, you can do nation building, but you've got to, from the get-go, you've got to realize it's going to take you at least 30 years to do it. Yeah, generations. Yeah, a generation, because nobody ever changes their mind about anything, and the guys that are in charge there are not going to change their mind about how they want to run things. Uh, what's going to happen is you've got to catch them as cadets, and by the time those cadets are generals and presidents, you might have something. I mean, it, you can even take away the war, and it still takes a long time. You yep. know, you didn't just automatically decree a democracy in Japan or the Philippines after World War II, it took a, it was a hard slog to mold those countries into and whatever th- they are. And those were <laughs> those were countries that had a tradition of governance. I mean Japan had a you know a high culture and a very institutionalized system of governance. You look at Afghanistan, exactly. they don't have any they've never had anything every, like that. Everybody wanted to make it work. The indigenous personnel wanted to make it work. And the uh and the Americans wanted to make it work, and it, it really worked out pretty well. Not so much in the Philippines, where, you know, 40 years was not war everywhere, little, little wars here and there, but not war everywhere. And it still took, well, and except for the interval. I mean, we'd been there since the Spanish-American War, when World War II came, and we hadn't made a country out of it yet. And uh, then World War II came and threw things back another at least four years. And, uh, and, and that was not while fighting a counterinsurgency at the same time. 
And so, you can see in the Philippines, yeah. they're still having challenges to the to the Philippine state and uh, entire towns or cities taken over by insurgents in Zamboanga in 2013 and Marawi just last year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's that's the Philippines here again. It's like, you know, you're we can we can change the we can change the form, but we can't change the the subject. We can't change the culture. You know, we're not going to change the culture uh, in um, in these places. So, yeah, well, you guys got it, and I've said this many times. You're the you're the first people that ever said it ahead of me. It takes at least a generation. What was it that uh, uh, wasn't had, it? Mark Boyat said like a, several generations was like. Yeah, well, uh, Mark Boyat. I don't know if you know him, Jim. He was the third Special Forces Group commander during the nineties. Uh, he said something like three and, generations. Yeah, well, or, he he made the point that part of the problem, or he he said, you know, we haven't been in Korea for fifty years. We've been in Korea for one year fifty times, meaning that there's never been a long term cohesive plan where each year we move things a little bit further on the plane. Instead, it's like every year a new group of people come and start over from scratch. Yeah, yeah roger that. Um, that is exactly correct. And uh, this is like me and Miller having lunch. You know, we get together and <laughs> we'll never run. <laughs> Ken, Ken Miller is a super smart guy. I, I've, I've gone back and forth with him. He is a very, very intelligent person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he's a China expert, though, on, on China and Taiwan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, speaks the language, knows the culture, knows. Uh, he, look, Ken Miller writes poetry in Mandarin. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, oh, what a thrill. Um, I had a I had a friend Bob McNeely. Bob was um, a ranger in Vietnam, and uh, then years later he was Clinton's White House chief White House photographer for six years. Oh wow! Um, and um, he uh, he turned me on to Tiger Alert Dog Ken's first mm-hmm. book, and um, uh, I, I was just blown away by it. And then I was. Okay, I worked for Soldier of Fortune for a couple of years, and then I edited their principal competition, which wasn't really much competition, in New York for, uh, let's see, I worked for Eagle, that was the name of the magazine, for two and a half years, and then I was a book editor for five years in New York. And um, uh, so Ken and I got to be friends long distance, and then when I moved to L.A., he was the first person I made contact with, and we've been pretty tight ever since. Um, it, it's, it's like, it's like the brother I didn't grow up with, you know. <laughs> when you hear these stories, it almost seems like Soldier of Fortune was like the predecessor to what you do, Jack. I, I feel like it. I've, I, and I've met Bob Brown a couple times and, you know, Jim, uh, wrote for the magazine, as he said. And yeah, I, I feel like that, that what Bob Brown did, and I, I'd like to hear your take, Jim, but I think what Bob Brown did, which is really remarkable, is he gave a platform and a voice to a lot of Vietnam vets in a time when people did not want to hear about the war. Totally true. Totally true. Uh, I was, okay, what was I doing? I was, um, I was working as a, uh, a PR guy for the Oklahoma City District Recruiting Command, which I have to say is the worst job I've ever had. <laughs> and, uh, 
and um, uh, I heard that some nut in Boulder, Colorado, <laughs> were for mercenaries. And so I, I had a cardboard box full of stuff I'd written about Vietnam that I hadn't been able to sell anywhere. So um, I called him and told him, and and he said, "Well, I'm going on. I'm on my way to a reserve weekend, or no, a reserve summer camp." And I'll come see you on the way. It was only 500 miles out of his way. And uh, he showed up, had dinner with us, um, ate his salad with his hands, which kind of, kind of grossed out my girlfriend, <laughs> and took my cardboard box and went away and promptly lost it. And so in, the, in subsequent years, I took maybe four, year, four trips to Boulder just looking for my cardboard box. Finally, he hired Bob Poos as managing editor. Poos went over everything they had. He found my cardboard box, and eventually they bought all of it. And um, uh, that, it, was, it was just, I cannot tell you how much fun it was working for those guys. You know, I mean, Brown, for one thing, is he's very smart and just yes. a little crazy. Mm-hmm. I, and, I agree. Um, <laughs> Uh, what what he basically did was he gave um, he was his people don't re- realize his branch was MI you know well, this is before we had branches and before there was an SF branch and his his basic branch was MI and his contacts were at DIA and what we did basically was give the the DIA a free MI detachment because we sent those guys so much stuff that we couldn't publish in the magazine uh, because it would get people killed or because it was, you know, whatever. Um, okay, for one thing, uh, or, or for instance, uh, I, 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 my first good story for them, was a great experience, was to go and live, live for a month with the, uh, with the Christian militia in Lebanon. Yeah. Um, uh, the Lebanese Forces Militia. And you talk and, about the girls uh, in high heels and AK-47s dashing across the street. Roger, that that was just, <laughs> oh, God, so many stories. But um, they didn't really have, I mean, these guys were making it up as they went along. <laughs> and, um, for instance, I visited their artillery FDC, and I realized they weren't using artillery terms. And... Um, because they had just captured these guns, and some of them were engineers, and some of them were architects, and they did the math and figured out their own firing table and figured oh, wow. out how to fire the guns, and and uh, they were they were really good, but they didn't know the lingo, and so I teased them about that, and and they just you know gave it back to me, um, but. Um, Okay, the best friend, in fact, thank God for Facebook. I've, I'm Facebook friends with some of those guys today. And one of them was, okay, I called him Jack Tabbitt. His name is Jacques Tabet. Um, and his, his father was a Lebanese ambassador to Canada, and his mother was Canadian. So, um, uh, you know, he had a, a, a very different approach. And and first time I saw Jack, he was wearing jeans, sneakers, a t-shirt, a French airborne camo jacket with an AK slung over his shoulders. And so one day I asked, I said, Jack, why why don't you, 
why don't you wear a uniform? All these other guys wear uniforms. They don't have rank, but they have job titles and stuff, and they wear uniforms. And he said, I don't like them. And uh, I said, well, you know, he said, what are they going to do? They can't fire me. They can't find me. They don't pay me. They can't bust me. I don't have a rank. You know, I'm a volunteer. (laughs) And I volunteer to do it this way. (laughs) And he said, I got a friend. He fights in flip-flops. He can't fight in boots. They inhibit his movement or something. Was this in uh, 83? No, that was that that was eighty. Eighty, okay, in Beirut. Yeah, yeah in Beirut, and um, uh, my roommate there was Claude. I can't remember Claude's last name, but he was a one-armed commando platoon leader, and he had been he had lost his arm at the Battle of Tel Zatar, which was the first major engagement of that war. Uh, and he was always and forever figuring out ways. He was one of the few guys that carried an M16 because he could operate it one-handed. <laughs> you know, he'd just lay it over his forearm and fire it. Um, and uh, one of the things I noticed in Beirut was that uh, people had their prior, ladies had their priorities straight. You know, in most countries, women are attracted to rock stars and uh, sports heroes. But in Beirut, uh, the one-armed commando platoon leader got more trim than anybody else in, in the country. <laughs> I'd be there. One time, I was just I was just hanging out in the room, and Claude wasn't there, and there was a blap, blap on the door, and I opened it, and there was this young woman standing there who, oh, my God. She was, she was gorgeous. And, um, and, and she said, Ue Claude. <laughs> and I, I tried to explain to her that he was off with some other chick. Only I didn't want to say that. And finally, she, you know, she just went away. But that was, I mean, this guy, he just, he ran through him like Kleenex. It was amazing. <laughs> I mean, I've been to Beirut, you know, during peacetime. This was just like what two years ago. It's a beautiful city. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous, but when I went in, there were the thing I noticed. I, I landed at Junia, and I didn't have, I didn't have a visa, you know, uh, but I was met by the by the local uh, by the Lebanese forces guy, and uh, for a while I wasn't sure whether I was an honored guest or a prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be an honored guest and I had I had such a great time. Did you but ever cross paths were, with a guy named John Conan? I know that name. He was uh and I I, th- I hope I'm saying the name right. He was a force recon marine in Nam and then he served with the um Rhodesian uh Rhodesian forces. I can't remember what unit he was with. Um I think he was with the uh, RLI with the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Okay. And yeah. yeah. Um, he he got kidnapped in in Lebanon after the war. Right. No, uh, I knew one of those guys who was kidnapped in hell for six years, Terry Anderson, who was an AP reporter. Um, no, you know, he, this guy was kidnapped for like twenty four hours. He managed to get away. Ah, uh, well, gee, I don't know. When Larry was there, I 
I, I sent Larry Dring up to go to, to Lebanon to teach anti-tank warfare to the Lebanese forces, which he did. He went around. Uh, where, where do I know, know Larry Dring from? Uh, did you ever read Fighting Men, my other book? Yes. About a third of it is about him. Yeah, okay. Was he at, like, Langvey or something like that? I'm trying to place it. Uh, no, that's, that's Paul Longrier. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting my names confused. Yeah, it's, well, you know, I mean, it can't tell the players without a scorecard. I mean, you know, you know everybody, you know who everybody you know is. You can't be expected to know who everybody you've read about is. <laughs> but no, Larry, Larry Dring. I mean, that name definitely rings a bell. Well, he was Larry was the best combat commander I personally ever knew, and he was he was just an amazing guy. Uh, I met him. Uh, we used to we used to fly over. Uh, from Okinawa and jump in Korea at night. And there, there was a big, long sand bank by the Han River. Yes. Uh, wonderful soft sand, except when we jumped on it in the wintertime. It was frozen solid then. And the first time I ever did it, I fractured my coccyx. And Larry was the guy that picked me up and took me to the hospital. And by the time we got to the hospital, we were buds. Uh, I was a, yeah, I was first lieutenant then. He was a staff sergeant. And, um, oh, and, and uh, at, while at, at the hospital, they gave me a chemical heating pad and a bottle of Darvon, and I said, that's it. And the doctor said, contrary to personal, popular opinion, young man, we cannot put your ass in a sling. <laughs> when, uh... I, always, I always thought that was a, a, a good line. But anyway, so Larry and I became buddies, and um, he, um, he had been on the resident team in Korea. Yeah, Det K. Yeah, and he happened to be um, he happened to be back there visiting people and he was trying to get, you know, the Koreans didn't play the one jump and you get the wings game. They made you do the the seven that they had to do to qualify and he had six and he was going to get his seventh jump. And they had a they had a revolution, the revolution that installed Chung-hee Park while he was yes. there trying to jump. And so um, he's walking down the street, and, and uh, a buddy of his, a Korean captain, said, Hey, Dring, you know, where are you going? He said, No place special. He said, We'll get in. And he said, What's going on? Well, we're having a revolution. This guy here in the, in the, back, of the back of the car is, is John Chang. He's the Minister of Agriculture. He's my prisoner. We're going to the Bando Hotel and, you know, ride out this coup. And uh, so they're sitting there, and they're having a couple of drinks and playing cards and uh, this captain says to Dring, he said, you know, hey, this guy's still legally the Minister of Agriculture. How would you like to be the Minister of Agriculture? So Larry was for about 24 hours. I don't think this made it into the history books, but he was the Minister of Agriculture for the Republic of Korea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was was this Larry? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did Larry have to be sent home ahead of time because he was uh, un, inadvertently associated with the coup? Yeah, you just yeah, dropped you just dropped uh, like a huge puzzle piece right in there for me because I I know of this incident. I didn't know it was Larry Dring was the guy. Yeah, it was it was Larry. And, <laughs> oh my uh, gosh! <laughs> you know, he said a. He sent a message back to Hokey. When he got, when he arrived, he had, you know, he was, he looked pretty rank because he was wearing the same clothes he'd been wearing for three days, and uh, and they were Korean fatigues, which, you know, we didn't wear on Okinawa. 
Jim, and, I'm uh, gonna I'm gonna have to email you. Happy week, Sergeant Major. Uh, a message, Pappy. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Referring to the coup. I'm I'm going to have to email you the the um big uh, article I wrote about the history of of SF detachment K and uh it talks about that and then it talks about the other coup too where Chuck Randall was like on house arrest for you know about 24 hours and they were like trying to get him to approve the new Korean constitution he was like uh, I'm an SF captain I can't do that man <laughs> uh, I bet I bet a big source for that article was Mark Smith uh, no, I don't believe I ever spoke to that gentleman. Really? No. Well, if you want to, I'll set it up. We're in a, we have, we belong to a, an internet group called the Shooter Channel. It's creaky old farts who reminisce. I'd love to talk to him. I'll send you that article. You'll get to see, like, most of the sources are named in it. Um, and you'll, you'll get a kick out of that. It, it took a while to write, but it was worth it. It was a lot of fun. Well, Mark was the uh, was the the regular army's only high school dropout field grade officer, <laughs> and he's the uh, he's a character. <laughs> but I met him in I met him in uh, in Thailand. He'd come over for a jump, and um, they they had a thing they call a well, uh, probably pronouncing this wrong, but uh, friendship in Thai is Mitropop. And they had what they called Mitropop jumps. And the idea was that a bunch of Thais and, um, and Americans would put on a, uh, uh, a demonstration jump and, and use it to sell tickets and make money to replenish schools in Thailand. And they did this a lot of times. Didn't and, you and Bob uh, Brown do one after the war? Uh, he may have. Um, I thought I read about he, that in your book. Bob, well, Bob jumped the balloon with us. Ah, uh, okay. That was when Mark came back, and we went up and jumped the balloon, and then we went out and jumped a uh, a one thirty with uh, the uh, uh, third third. What, what would they What would they call them? They were second classmen, the juniors at the Thai Military Academy that afternoon, and uh, that was kind of weird because they gave me a uh, a steerable T ten. And uh, SF-10, I, went out, yeah. I went out upwind, uh, so before I could even get the, get the risers loose, the wind had turned me and headed me right towards the stick that went out the other door, <laughs> and I ran, ran across this kid's canopy, <laughs> <laughs> and my chute's collapsing, and his chute's collapsing, and I'm like, Six feet or like four feet deep in this canopy, you know, it's oh like billowing God. up around me, and then I kind of slide off the other side, and our chutes inflated, and it was fine. But, but it was—it really got your attention there for a minute. Jeez. Uh, well, Jim, before I wanted to get into some of the other stuff we had uh, we had talked about before, but before we move on, I do want to ask about your reflections on the Vietnam War because we could talk. I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but I did want to pin that down. You know, what you think, when you look back on the war, what was, what was the war about? What did it mean for you personally? I, I wondered about that for a very long time because nobody ever wrote it down anywhere. We didn't have a mission statement. Um, you know, we, the, the, the closest thing to a mission statement was Lyndon Johnson saying, nail that coonskin to the wall. <laughs> and what? say what and so 
you know, I did a lot of reading and a lot of research, and the closest thing to a mission statement I came from, which was also from Johnson, was that he wrote uh, Senator Richard Russell, the uh, um, chairman then of the of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he said that he couldn't see any strategic reason why we should be in Vietnam. But he went in anyway because we had a treaty with him, and he wanted to demonstrate to NATO and CETO that we would live up to our treaty obligations. Right, that so we weren't we pushovers. So we had a treaty with country that we had totally made up and um, that we had what I think was a major mistake was that they staffed the Republic of Vietnam when it, when it started, and it was an agency project. And they staffed it with guys who had fought for the French. Mm-hmm. And the only people in that country, that I mean, which was to say quizlings and losers, and the only, the only people in that country, and there were plenty of them, who knew how to fight that kind of war were non-communist former Viet Minh. And all of the, every competent officer I worked with in Vietnam at that point in time was a non-communist former Viet Minh. And they, they, were, they were clean, they were honest, they knew their stuff. And uh, the other guys would just send us more money so we can steal it. Yeah. And, um, but the purpose, the, the only actual goal that I've ever seen that we went there to realize was to convince our allies that we would stand by our treaty obligations and we did that and we stuck with it if we stuck with it any longer they would have just thought we were crazy and that you know we were courting nuclear war so we made the point that yeah we'll sacrifice 60,000 guys to live up to our our treaty obligations and we're not going to start a thermonuclear war Um, and so that's the reason I say that Vietnam was not really a war. It was an infomercial. And it was really about what was happening in Berlin at the same time frame. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, so we accomplished everything we set out to accomplish in Vietnam, and then we bailed. Uh, now, we totally betrayed the people that we had led down the garden path for 16 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the process of bailing, and I think that was because um, if we had backed them, now we don't know that the, you know uh, there we did not resupply them after we left, you know, and we trained them to fight with an American supply train. Oh, and then the logistics so, are just um, uprooted. Yeah, so so they got you know overrun in what forty days. Do you think um, it was dishonorable for us to leave under those circumstances? Or yeah. Th- How could it be anything else? But what it was, was that the Democratic Congress, which is what we had then, was not going to risk Richard Nixon getting a victory. I'm sorry, but that's it. And so I always, and this is, I say, I, this is what I say. If uh, soldiers... Do not win or lose wars. Soldiers either accomplish or fail to accomplish their assigned mission. 
if you get 100% accomplishment of all missions assigned and lose the war, the place to look is not at the soldiers. Right. I mean, one of the things said about uh, Vietnam is that, you know, it was a tactical victory, but a strategic defeat. Yeah. Well, same with the Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, that was, you know, I fought in the Tet Offensive for, uh, well, actually, I was only actually involved in actual combat for about 24 hours. Um, but in the next couple of weeks, I was all over the country and morale was so high because we had kicked their ass all the way around the block. <laughs> and then the press reports started coming in, you know. I mean, my first clue is I got the Far East edition of Newsweek, Newsweek and um, was rather vociferously informed that my the victory of which I was so proud had been a defeat. Well, no, it wasn't. You Why know, do you think the press a, reported it like that? Well, look, the press... All right, now, I, I chased around all during the 80s. I was chasing around with SOF, and I interacted a lot with the press. And um, my first experience with that was in Tom Penn in 73. And those were great guys, but they all, uh, they all lived together. And um, they, all worked for, for, they all worked for editors who, and this is television and um, news, newspapers both, who basically read the New York Times on their way to work on the train into Manhattan every morning and then whatever the Times had, that's what they wanted. Gotcha. Yep. And um, uh, you know, and look for 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 fifteen years, I didn't go more than fifteen minutes thinking about anything but Vietnam. I read everything I could get my hands on. I read, you know, I mean, first it was how are we going to do it, and the second was how uh, what what happened, and. Um, there is a herd mentality in the press. And um, so all those guys, they have have dinner together, they drink together, uh, they smoke together, they get, they reach an agreement on what the story is. And you are not going to rise in that profession by writing something that runs counter to the story. To the narrative. No, that's exactly right. You can't, you know, it, that's that's just not going to happen. I mean, well, okay. And I was an outcast from the get-go because I worked for that infamous, <laughs> that infamous Robert K. Brown publication. Yeah. So you so, think so? That's uh, why the Tet Offensive was reported as a defeat. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, that and the fact that the guys who ran the five, five o'clock follies in in Saigon didn't know what they were talking about because they, you know, they were clerks and jerks. Um, and also uh, the fact that the, the, the other guys got on the embassy grounds, you know, I mean, they got six guys over the fence at the embassy and they were promptly hosed down. But the fact that they breached the fence at the embassy and they did, they didn't draw the conclusion that some clown breached the fence at the White House two weeks later. They didn't think that meant that the 
the United White House States was, was taken. Yeah. But somehow they thought that meant that Vietnam was. And then I know we, we had talked about it a, a little bit before, and I wanted to, you know, get your perspective is, you know, since, you know, retiring and, uh, and you know, in the civilian world, you talked a little bit to me about um, your interest in shamanism and, and how you related that to your military experience. I was wondering if well, you, you had a really interesting perspective on that as, as far out as it seems to me, because I have nothing to compare it to or no experience in what you're talking about, but I, I related to the feelings that you were expressing. Well, um, yeah, I, you know, if, if after, after Vietnam, if you had suggested that I had PTSD, I would have hit you. And, um, but the truth is I later realized that I had lived a disordered life after a period of traumatic stress, which kind of sounds like post-traumatic stress disorder to me. And um, my third marriage was falling apart. That's another clue. And um, so I, was, I had a, a tech writing job for the post office department. And um, I, had, uh, I did a little time and motion study because I had six months to do the job, and I finished one-third of it by noon the first day. So I thought, you know, I've got to slow down. And I started reading in my spare time. And I started reading Castaneda. Um, and for people who don't know Castaneda, this might not make much sense. But anyway, uh, Castaneda was an apprentice shaman to uh, a, um, uh, a medicine man named uh, Juan Matus in Sonora. At least that's the backstory. And um, the, the backstory is questionable, but the principles he taught are terrific. And uh, what he always talked about was um, what he called the warrior's way. And uh, basically he, said, he felt that the attitudes that you needed to take into shamanism were the same attitudes you needed to take into battle, and they had a breakdown of them. And uh, the four that really took hold were lose self-importance, erase personal history, use death as an advisor, and accept responsibility for your own acts. And um, I realized that the happiest I'd ever been was my first six months in Vietnam, and that all of those principles were, were you know, I had no self-importance because, Jesus, you know, this big war was going on around me, and I had no personal history because I just got there, and I had to use death as an advisor because people were shooting at mm -hmm. me, and, uh, and I had to accept responsibility for my own acts because I was in charge. And, a friend uh, of mine who is a uh, he was a CIA paramilitary contractor in Afghanistan, and he's described that he'd say war was my guru. Yeah, yeah, that's well. It was it was a lot like that for me because I, you know I was your basic squarehead um, Amerikanischer Schwein when I when I went to uh, went to Vietnam, and it's just such a weird place. I mean. Um, Everybody, the, you could sense spirits there, you know. I could. Every day is Halloween in Vietnam, <laughs> and um, you know, and and weird things would happen. Like um, a friend of mine was telling me about this guy that uh, uh, was going out on patrol the next day, and he pounded down a beer, and he said, "Well, that's the last one." And the guy said, "You mean till after the operation?" And he said, "Nope, ever," and he didn't come back. 
and um, well, you know, Tilt Meyer was in was in Sog, yeah, and um, I was not. And at one point, I was presented with an opportunity to volunteer for Sog, <clears throat> and I really wanted out of the job I was in, so. I was sitting in the club thinking about that, and all of a sudden I had like this perceptual change. That I was looking down a corridor that led to uh, uh, looking down a corridor that led to uh, some slot machines back there, and there was a red light back there, and suddenly the the corridor was three times longer, and it was just it was just all different. And I knew, I absolutely knew that if I volunteered for SOG, I would die. And I didn't do it. And um, later I was talking to a guy who was in it, and I told him that story. And he said, oh, you would have been that bunch of, uh, a bunch of captains they brought in to command hatchet teams. And I said, yeah, yeah I guess so. What happened to those guys? And he said, they all died. So, yeah. That's incredible. Something to be said for gut instinct, huh? Uh-huh, Absolutely. There is a lot to be said for it. I use it. Um, I use logic and gut instinct as like binary vision, you know. Mm-hmm. But if 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 they really don't line up, I go with the gut instinct. Well, what sure. I, I found helpful uh, reading over the oh, maybe a year ago now is the Hakaguri, uh, which is the kind of the um, their texts about the way of the samurai written by um, a, you know a Japanese samurai during the feudal period. Um, right. and he writes a lot about interesting stuff about the samurai and, and the right way to live your life and, and how to, you know, I guess, integrate and function in larger society as well. And it sounds like you found some of those answers in, uh, in shamanism. Uh, yeah, that, that is absolutely true. And, and in fact, I am not the only one. Um, I'm having lunch Friday with a friend of mine, uh, James Morgan Ayers, who was, uh, he did a hitch in the uh, <clears throat> in the seventh back in the day, and about '62, I think. And um, <clears throat> he got involved in an investigation, and some guys that were were uh, diverting, you know, stealing weapons and stuff, and um, did well with that. And so he was kind of snatched out of Fort Bragg and did some things for some guys, and. Um, then uh, anyway, uh, the thing about the thing about Morgan is that he has essentially the same outlook and similar training, but his is all Chinese martial arts and Tai Chi and Qigong and that kind of stuff. And so we we have a lot of fun, um, you know, comparing principles and finding out that they're just different iterations of yeah. pretty much the same principles. Uh, and and then of course we wind up planning patrols will never run <laughs> it's just something you do you know i mean it's it's it's, it's ridiculous but it you know i mean some of us can barely walk but what, um what but would that's you, what we we plan patrols will never run what would you say jim to a lot of the guys who are coming home now or veterans of iraq and afghanistan and the other little bushfire wars we have going around the world and they're now back in, on Civvy Street living, you know, what you referred to as a, a disorganized life. Well, you know, it, it's, it's a real jolt. I mean, that's another thing that Indians have is they have, they have ceremonies and stuff for guys coming out of battle mm-hmm. uh, to kind of 
bring you back to planet Earth. And um, uh, the the temptation is just to go crazy. Yeah. Um, and I kind of did. Um, you know, you immediately discover a that you don't have any 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 strong goal outside yourself. You need that. You know, you, you you that's that's the whole point of a spiritual life is to is to have something that's more important to you than you are. And uh, if you don't have that, then your life is horribly unbalanced. Uh, but the other thing you learn is that. that the social dynamic is different, you know. Um, Now, I I think it's still true that this is true in the military, and it certainly was in my day. If you were a lying sack of shit, you were ostracized. And um, uh, in in civilian life, people will just automatically tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to know because they don't want to hassle with, you know, a frown or whatever. And it takes a while to get used to that, you know. I mean, you you know, you think, well, somebody told me this, so it must be true. And when you and, walk into the office and just say the blunt, honest truth, it, it shocks people. They're 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 oh uh, yeah. Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? It, you're you're grinding against the gears, like they're, they're it's this like you know uh, you can see a visible reaction on their faces. Right, yeah, you know, and it's um, it's like the old song: accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mister In Between. Well, that's 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 a good way to keep people happy, but it's not a good way to get anything done. I think when I when I look at you know some of the things you did after the war, Jim, and I I can see that I did some of the same things, and I just wanted to get your take on it because. You know, you got out and you went to work for uh, Soldier of Fortune magazine, and you wrote that. Ter- what came out of it in the end was that terrific book, uh, "The Devil's Secret Name," which recounts a lot of those trips you took overseas to different war zones, reporting on them. I, you know, I got out of the military, and like you said, I also worked ver- working very hard, almost frantically. Um, trying to do all these different things, writing, uh, traveling to different war zones and reporting on them. And when I look back on it now, I, I realize, I think subconsciously, what I was trying to do with all of that was make sense of what I had gone through in Iraq and Afghanistan and to try to understand oh, ab- my own experience. Absolutely. And, and it's important that this be done, you know? I mean, it's important that this be done uh, to uh, so that it, it won't be done again, you know. That so that the next guy that has to go will have a uh, have a uh, a little bit of a handle on what he's getting into. Now that said, <clears throat> if you if that's what you're going to do with your life, if if you know that at least at some point in your life you're going to soldier, and you're serious about it, I mean, I read before I went in the army, I had read. For, from here to eternity eight times, and, you know, that doesn't end well for its hero. And I had read Catch-22 six times, and, you know, that was just about guys getting blown out of the sky. Mm -hmm. And all it did was make me, yeah, I want some of that, you know, and I got it. And and (laughs) I'm glad that's the weird thing. I'm glad I got it. I wouldn't surrender it. I I wouldn't have it any other way. But damn you know yeah 
Are, are you familiar with uh, Joseph Campbell's work? Oh yeah. I, what do you oh, yeah. what do you think of that? Because he so talks about places. yeah, he talks about the importance of um, like rituals and um, rites of passage for young men, and, and you know, I, for for people like us, I mean, war was that rite of passage. It seems like as Americans, it's one of the few kind of I don't know, like primal ceremonies, I guess you could say that's that's left for us. Well, you know, I had I had um, my I went to a military high school, and. Uh, so, you know, uh, segueing into the Army, it was, the life was not that dissimilar. The Army was a little less military. <laughs> that, was, that was about the big change. Um, so, um, we, you know, we had a rite of passage. That basically, they just beat the shit out of you for six weeks, and then they shook your hand and <laughs> your PSD. Do you think we have a problem with that on, on the other side? Like you mentioned, the Native Americans have, uh, you know, sort of like cleansing ritual. Um, you know. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, um, you know, I, I won't say that, you know, shamanism per se is the, uh, is the, uh, the answer, but the, the techniques that shamanism uses are a big part of the answer, and th- there are other groups like uh, Morgan's uh, Shigung and all of that that do similar things. And, um, yeah, you gotta f- you got to find a, a life for yourself. I have, a, I have a friend here in L.A., Miguel Rivera, who, uh, who does sweats. And, um, you know, the sweat lodge is a, is, a, is a tremendous transforming ritual experience. And it, it will... It, it won't in itself change your life, but it'll start to change. <clears throat> and you know, the you you. I'm trying to I'm trying to think how to explain what the difference is. But I used to have a mechanistic view of the universe, and now I have a much more organic view of the universe. And um, it's um, it's okay. What I was what I was hoping to find when I started studying this was a way to be as happy as I was that first six months in Vietnam, and and sometimes I am. What you techniques know, did always, you find were uh, helpful for you? Hmm? What techniques did you find were helpful for you in, in kind of finding that happiness? Well, the the lose self importance thing. Um, uh, you know, lose self importance, erase personal history. I use that as a checklist for a long time, um, and uh, you know, if if I was unhappy about something, I knew that um, I was violating one of those principles, and all I had to do was um, go through them and and kind of compare what what, what I why until I found why I felt like I did that wasn't how I should. And then I would apply that principle and it would just go away. <clears throat> and then later when I started taking courses, I didn't take them from Castaneda, who was a great writer, but something of an asshole, frankly. Um, I took them from Don Miguel Ruiz, who is uh, uh, oh, he's just the sweetest guy in the world. And, and he is um, 
uh, a different lineage of Mexican shamanism, um, all coming back from the Toltecs. And um, I learned his four, the four agreements. If I was going to advise anybody to do the one thing they could do to get started on getting their act squared away is to read the four agreements. And the four agreements are be impeccable with your word, by which he means not just don't be a liar, but don't bullshit yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is, um, okay, uh, be impeccable with your word. Don't make assumptions. And they have a saying in the military, you know, assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups. Don't make assumptions. And don't think anything, take anything personally. Uh, because it's not personal. If somebody says something insulting about you or something derogatory about you, all it means is he doesn't know you and he's talking about himself. And the other one is, um, uh, okay, it's always do your best, which is the same as accept responsibility for your own acts. So it's basically, it's Miguel's version of the same thing. And I would if 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 you're having if you got problems in how, with your own attitude in life, <clears throat> pop out and buy a copy of the Four Agreements. It will solve eighty five percent of your problems right now. It's crazy that Jim's bringing that up because I've I've heard this book referenced really? so many times from different people walks of life. I mean, like you know, I'm a Guns N' Roses fanatic, uh, Jack. Uh, you know, the drummer Steven Adler, so you know, had heroin abuse problems, all this stuff, and. I've heard him on a recent interview say like that that book changed his really? life. I'm going to have turned, to go look for his it life now. Around. So, but if, I think you hear a lot of similar principles from different things. Like I, I think there's like a Lao Tzu quote of, uh, you know, if you're living in the, the past, you're depressed. If you're living in the future, you have anxiety. If you're living in the present, you're at peace. It, it's, you know, and I'm probably butchering the quote. It's something to that uh, effect. But like, I, I think from all different walks of life, people who are Christians, people who are Buddhists, you hear, a lot of these similar principles that you could use in your own life. Yeah, well, that's one of the great things about the Toltecs is um, what they teach is it's not a religion. They teach you a set of, of principles that work for you and help you practice them. And I know uh, I know a couple of the Toltec teachers who are Jewish. Uh, I know another one who is a flamer. He was, boy, is this guy gay. And, uh, <laughs> Um, let's, uh, but a lot of people like myself, I mean, I don't consider myself a Christian, but I do consider myself a big fan of Jesus. Sure. You know what I'm saying? No, I, I understand that completely. I mean, I was raised Jewish, but I think like a lot of the teachings of Jesus could be applied to all of us today. And, and the stuff that you read in Buddhism, that's why, I mean, this is getting totally off soft rep type, but personally, that's why I don't like subscribe to any one religion. I, I like to learn from all of them. And uh, an, another quote that I love is the Bruce Lee quote of absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, add what is uniquely your own. And I do try to live by that. If, you know, if I find something useful in what he's saying about shamanism, doesn't mean I'm going to become a shaman, but I could use that principle in sure. my own walk of life. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I certainly don't consider myself a shaman. Uh, I just consider myself a guy who... Um, tries to be a little aware of some of these other currents that are floating around that uh, you don't learn about in school. Yeah, and it sounds like these are very, like, practical, pragmatic principles that you can apply in life. It's not... Uh, oh, yeah, totally, totally down to earth. Yeah, totally yeah. Totally down to earth. 
Yeah, it's not pie in but the sky. But then when you get into the esoteric stuff, I mean, I have, I have seen and had happen to me and done things which uh, anybody will tell you are not possible. But they're possible, <laughs> and they happen, you know. And I've concluded that we don't really, um, that we, there, there is a collective consciousness, and you can, there is access to it. And um, I recently, okay, uh, at the start of the conversation, you realized that my, you know, I mentioned that my wife is very ill, and she's bedridden, and we do a lot of, you know, that's that's the main thrust of my life right now, is just to make her happy. Mm-hmm. And um, she's in a situation where I would have killed myself a long time ago. Um, and um, she, um, what I've discovered, I've started studying some of these uh, alternative healing modalities. I just picked up one called the emotion codes. And you realize that you can access people to, um, okay, the, the, the premise of the emotion codes is that we have trapped in our auric field, I'm sorry, but I have to get into this kind of jar- jargon. Uh, <laughs> certain it. emotions that we picked up along the way, and that whenever that emotion is activated, you're not dealing with the crisis that you're dealing with. You're dealing with every time you've ever dealt with it your whole life long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have a technique, uh, the guy who invented this, uh, Dr. Bradley Nelson, for removing these, and it involves muscle testing and magnets and and... I've learned to do it for, and I have successfully done this technique on people who live 2,000 miles from me. And, um, you know, since I've stripped, first of all, I did it on myself and I just felt all of these trapped emotions. I'd learned to deal with them, but they were just gone. And, um, since I've done it, I have one friend who used to call me every couple of weeks to tell me his wife was driving him to suicide. Haven't heard from him since I did that. Not about that. Um, my my uh, daughter-in-law used to call me every couple of weeks wanting my, my help in getting my son committed to psychiatric observation because they fight a lot, but her being Comanche, that has really nothing to do with it. <laughs> anyway... Um, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. I did it on them and, uh, and, and on a bunch of other people, including Morgan, my friend that I'm meeting, the guy who used to be in the, in the seventh, um, the Qigong guy. And I did it on him, and uh, he called me. He said, what time did you do it? And I told him, and he said, well, that's when my blocked-up nasal passages instantly opened and my eyes cleared up. <laughs> and I mean, at that time when I did it, and uh, so this this sounds kind of fantastic because it's something I learned to do in a day, and uh, but it works. It worked on me, and it worked on everybody I've used it on. Well, I mean, it's one of those things. If it works for you, it works for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I did it. I did it for my wife, and she was in there at the time with her caregivers, and she was just climbing the walls over something i forget what it was but she wasn't having it whatever it was and i went out there and and did the i went out back and did the codes on her when i came back they were laughing and smiling and talking and <laughs> having fun together and that was five minutes later jim this is uh this has been a terrific interview and yeah we've uh, covered so much ground. I, i'd love to have <laughs> you on again sometime because like we've 
just scratched the surface here. There's so much more we could talk about. Well, um, guys, I, in my present situation, I don't leave the house for more than three hours because uh, I don't want to be away from her more than that. I understand. So here, you want to talk? I'm here. That's great. Yeah, we'll definitely do this again. And, and I should let the audience know, you know, First of all, I mean, the amount of subject matter here, you know that Jim has written so much great work. So check out his books. Check out War Story. War Story is the biggest one. The Devil's Secret Name, terrific book. Above and Beyond, A Battle of Sorcerers. I mean, there's close to, what, 10 books that you've written, uh, Jim? Uh, Eight. So there you go. I should mention The Battle of Sorcerers is... um, is, It's not a war book. If you're interested in the shamanism stuff... That's that's the place to start. There you go. Uh, the only the only concession to war is that my my uh, uh, my protagonist is a former SF warrant. I just I don't understand other kinds of protagonists. <laughs> I don't get them. Uh, you know, the idea of spending your whole life as a civilian seems like such a waste to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would know. But, uh, no, we appreciate you going really long with us. I know originally you thought you'd be here for half an hour, and an hour and a half later we've covered a ton of ground, and I agree we could we could talk much longer. Um, I, I love when we I go out. So, you know, I mean, we talked so much soft stuff. What I meant. You know, you guys get me. I appreciate. Yeah, that. No, but and I was saying, you know, we talked a lot of soft stuff, but I, I do love when we enter outside that realm and talk about different stuff. And when Nick Irving was on, we talked about some actually similar stuff the last time he was on. So. Well, you know, Jim Jim has lived life, and it's interesting to see where things have taken him, and it's interesting to get into the experience of after the military and how do you reconcile all of these um, extreme experiences? You know. Yeah. Okay, I guess that's it. Yeah, that, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. If there's anything else you want to plug, uh, feel free. Great. Thanks a lot. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Jim. It was really great talking to you. You bet. Oh, oh wait a minute. Yeah. Something else to plug? Yeah, Six yeah. Silent Men, Miller's <clears throat> Miller and Ray uh, Martinez and Gary Linderer's history of, of the 101st LERPs yep. slash Rangers in Vietnam. This is this is a kind of a masterpiece. It's the entire history of the unit written by staff sergeant or below who were in it. Yep, and it's great. Yep, I I read it. I read it before I came in the military. Actually, it's a terrific series. Super. All right, I'm glad we got that in. Catch you later. Excellent, excellent episode with Jim Morris. Really loved uh, having him on, and I didn't expect we'd we'd get into all that material we did i mean when you said the shaman stuff i didn't know we'd go that deep into it but it was cool and dude i'm not gonna lie speaking of sweat lodge i feel like i'm in a fucking sweat lodge because this of office, the sun coming through the window yeah and also i don't know it's just the ac and all that i tried to you know put something on but it's very hot in here so we're gonna wrap this up uh two hour episode cool uh i i really enjoyed it and would love to have him back on um Wanted to mention that we are holding a raffle on softrep.com until May 16th, and it benefits the Special Children's Center in New York City, which provides services to families of 450 children, actually, with disabilities. Um, And with the raffle, you're bidding to win some great gear in this package, along with John Stryker Meyer's book, The Sod Chronicles, appropriate with uh, what we were just talking about. Uh, currently, we're just about at that goal of $1,000, so by the time you hear this, we probably are, but you could still, you know, we'll go above and beyond that goal, and you could still get a raffle ticket and help out a great cause. 
Uh, there's one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our premium crates have been an EDC med kit put together by Benghazi survivor and Army Ranger Chris Tonto Peranto, and a ballistic shield insert for your backpack made by Cry Precision. While Crate Club is really stepping up its game right now as 2018 progresses by putting out custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else, we have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've also just launched Kuna. And we just sent out our first box. I saw Scott Whitner post it, um, which includes like a multivitamin for your dog, um, which I'm sure is very helpful. I, I remember when I had a dog to get them to take pills. It's a little bit of a tough process, though. It is a pain in the ass. Have you ever have you ever heard of uh, Frosty Paws? Which is like, it's like ice cream no. for your dog. They sell at the supermarket. Like, it's okay for them. Dogs like normal ice cream. Of course. Yeah, but it's not good for them. It's not? No. Dude, all that sugar and all that. Because do- just like how dogs can't eat chocolate, they definitely should not be eating ice cream. Although people do tend to do that. But I was going to say, like, if you put your, uh, you know, pill in that Frosty Paws or real ice cream, if you want to do that, they'll, they'll have it. Um, you know, then they won't know the difference. Uh, but we have a train. We have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats, training aids, and it's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet but also promote being active with your dog. So, whether we're talking a pit bull, a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Like I said, the first box is out there, and I'm looking forward to seeing how people respond. And, you know, then we'll send out some new boxes as everything approaches. But I'm sure we're going to see some great feedback. Um, And as a reminder for all of those who are listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops uh, channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. It's only $4.99 a month. Um, And I just actually saw that Chris, our uh, web developer, is doing, you know, we now have an iOS app yeah. for the Spec Ops channel, and it looks fucking awesome because Chris is great. And in early June, that'll be available on Android as well, just like how I know when we did the Soprap app. You know, we uh, the Apple one was out a little bit earlier, and people were like, where's the Android? So early June, Android people, you'll see that. SpecOpsChannel.com. Uh, I don't know if there's anything more to say. We've talked for two hours all together here. And uh, excellent episode with Jim Morris. Really enjoyed having yeah. him on. And, and I think you guys uh, will hopefully enjoy it as well. And if you did, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, follow us. Follow me at Ian Scotto. Follow Jack at Jack Murphy RGR on Twitter. And unless you have anything else, we're out. That's it.
You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.